0: So that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the sinful body might be destroyed And we might no longer be enslaved to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. But if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. For we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus.
1: I want to begin with a confession this morning, a confession that um, will be meaningless to a lot of you probably and will sound heretical to others and uh, a kind of ho-hum effect on others, but... One that, as I was pondering this text, for some reason just came over me. And I want to begin by confessing that I have a deep and a nostalgic attachment to the word existentialism. Now, the reason for that nostalgic attachment to the word existentialism is because I was an adolescent all through the 60s and the air we breathed was existentialism along with a lot of other things like the Beatles and Vietnam and Sonny and Cher and Peter, Paul and Mary and the Mamas and the Papas and Martin Luther King and civil rights and John Kennedy. And Robert Frost, and Carl Sandburg, and Neil Armstrong, and Ernest Hemingway, and John Steinbeck, and the hippies, and Haight Ashbury and LSD, and the Jesus people, and Cassius Clay, and C.S. Lewis, and the death of God. It's amazing how many people after the service went out with a big smile. I could tell by their age. Thanks for reminiscing. <laughs> <laughs> I turned 14 in 1960. And I turned 24 in 1970. You take any young man between the age of 14 and 24 and you stick him in the 60s. And you have a very tumultuous time of individual life mingled with a very tumultuous time of intellectual and social life. And the imprint is bound to be significant. I believe it has been in my life. Puberty and pimples, and high school, and college, and marriage, and seminary, all of it in the 60s. And there was existentialism hanging in the air. Now, existentialism, this undefinable thing, hanging in the air, what in the world do you do with that word? Have you ever heard anybody define existentialism as a worldview? It was godless and hopeless. There is no God. There is no meaning. Life is absurd. All there is is existence, and a kind of rootless, radical freedom in the midst of this nothingness called existence, and so meaning is not something that's determined by essences out there like God or standards or objectivity or reality, nor is it determined by any essence in here as though human being were something distinct, created, or determined by something out there. All that essential stuff is not there. All that's there is, I am, I think, and I have freedom, and if there's to be any meaning at all, I will make meaning by what I do with the moment-by-moment, individual, radical freedom and existential choices that I have. So that just gives you the flavor of the emptiness, the emptiness of the worldview called existentialism. But in the 60s, that hopeless, empty, void, godless worldview had not yet produced the orgies of sexual indulgence that came in the 70s. It hadn't yet produced the avalanche of selfism that marked the 80s and on into the 90s. There still was... Moral vision. We think back. King, Martin Luther King and John F. Kennedy. And even in the music, we still could sing. The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. The answer is blowing in the wind. We still believe in the 60s there was an answer. And many of us, by the grace of God... Heard the answer in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We heard the news that there was Christ, the Son of God. He came, He took on this human flesh, He lived and loved and died like nobody we ever knew lived and loved and died. He rose again, He reigns, He poured out His Spirit, He filled us up, He calls us to walk in His absolutely unique path of love and justice and goodness and truth and meekness. We heard that. Many of us heard it. And we heard it in a lot of different voices. Some of us heard it in C.S. Lewis, some of us heard it in the echoes of Soren Kierkegaard, some of us heard it in Dietrich Bonhoeffer, some of us heard it in Martin Luther King, and some of you... Heard it in a thousand long-haired, beaded, sandal-wearing, Bible-toting Jesus people somewhere between San Francisco and Kabul, Afghanistan. But you heard it, and it made all the difference in the world. One of the things that those people from which we heard that news had in common was existentialism. Now, that may sound like a total contradiction. If existentialism is a godless, empty, hopeless, absurd worldview in which there's no meaning and all you can do is create meaning out of your own individual choices, what do I mean when I say what C.S. Lewis and Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Soren Kierkegaard and Martin Luther King and all those Jesus people had in common was existentialism? What am I talking about? What I mean is this. There was a spirit in those days... A spirit that was not identifiable with the godlessness and the hopelessness, but was bound up with it somehow. And you saw it in Søren Kierkegaard throwing his whole existential weight. Now this happened a hundred years ago, but his books didn't come into their own till the 60s. Throwing his weight against the formal dead Orthodox Church of Denmark. Because Christianity was simply a yes, yes to creeds and baptisms and confirmations. And writing books like Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing. I got my old faded copy out last night and looked at all my red marks in it and read on the back where Chad Walsh had said, this is like shock therapy. And remembered those days when I tasted Soren Kierkegaard for the first time. And there was a spirit... There was a spirit that came through it. Or take Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Many of us in those days read the cost of discipleship and letters and papers from prison with a passion and what we would have called an existential commitment that we didn't read any other book with because we knew that this man had put his whole existential weight against the church under the Third Reich, siding with the confessional church, having an outlawed seminary, and ultimately giving his life against Hitler. And we said, that's real. That's, that's existential. We didn't know what else to call it. We just said, this is right. This is where life is. This is... And you all know Martin Luther King who put his life on the line again and again and again. And however you may have agreed or disagreed with all the things that he might have said, there was a man who in the name of God was laying his life down and did lay his life down. And those of us in those days wanted so much to be like that. And we came to hate sham. That's what I mean by the spirit of existentialism. Even C.S. Lewis, right there in the center of status quo literary establishment in Cambridge. Even C.S. Lewis wrote things like this. The salvation of a single soul is more important than the production or preservation of all the epics and tragedies in the world. I remember, I was a literature major in college. And when I read one of the greatest literary spokesmen of the 20th century say that, it changed my life. The salvation of one soul is more important than every novel or epic that has ever been written. Better to have one soul saved and lose every book. And there was something about that that said, you mean he teaches this stuff? He spends his life doing this literary stuff and he believes the salvation of one soul is more important than all that stuff? And the answer was yes, and he wrote books to explain why he could do that. And we felt inside with Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Soren Kierkegaard and Martin Luther King and C.S. Lewis and so many others that there was a spirit that took hold of us My confession is that I grew up from a boy to a man in the atmosphere of existentialism, an atmosphere that said, if you're going to play games with your religion, if you're going to play games on Sunday, if you're going to talk as though you believe, and your vocation and your money and your leisure all looks just like those who don't believe, don't do it around me. Or if you're in the academic world where I was living through the whole decade and beyond, and you want to play your academic games without any connection to life, then don't do it around me. Because the only academic life that I give a hoot about is academic people who are driven with a passion for truth. And for God, and for people, and for eternity. I don't care about playing academic games to make money. I don't care about a faith that changes no life. Now, right at this point, if you're a discerning person, you might be feeling why I said, I have a confession to make. There's a downside to growing up in the 60s and being inebriated by the spirit of existentialism and the downside at least as I experience it is that I don't have very much patience with hypocrisy I don't have very much patience with sham Christians and impatience is not a virtue You hear the confession i get angry at people who play games who manipulate their academic post just to show their ability to think a thought and don't give a rip about whether they're taking their students to hell don't care about the big issues of truth, but only like to show off by calling into question all the simple things they learned in Sunday school. I don't have any patience with that. I hate it. And hatred can consume love. You hear the confession? Anger at a formal church At people who could care less about pro-life, who eat their big dinners and watch their television sets and don't give one minute to the fact that 4,000 babies a day are beheaded in this land, I get so angry. And anger swallows up compassion. Do you hear the confession? It's the downside of the 60s, or at least in my life. And there's no point in my trying to hide that. It's where I am. It's where I struggle. It's where you must pray for me if I'm to be of any use to you. There are scars left from the 60s as well as strengths. Now, what in the world does all of that have to do with Easter? (laughs) Did you forget this is Easter Sunday morning? Let's look at our text, and I'll try to make the connection for you. In this text that Tom read, there are four breathtaking facts. I wrote in the margin of my notes here, breathtaking, that's an existential word. People who come through the 60s don't care much about raw facts. Don't just give me the facts. facts. Don't just give me the facts. Give me the significance of the facts. Show me what you feel about the facts. Show me how you're going to respond to the facts. Show me how you'll die in view of these facts. Show me how it makes a difference in your sex life. In the way you eat. In the way you exercise. In the way you rear your children. In the way you do your vocation. I don't care about facts as facts. I care about facts as the foundation of transformed lives. Real, earnest, nitty-gritty, change, commitment, life, eternity, God, love. I should have flowers to throw now. Here are the four facts. Number one, verse four. Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. It ought to take your breath away. Christ is alive. After three days in in the tomb. Number two, verse nine. Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. That's it. That's number two. Death no longer has dominion over him. So the first two facts are he's alive and he's not just alive like Lazarus was alive to die again. He's alive because he in himself destroyed the power of death, will never die again, and therefore is Lord of the universe and victory over every evil in the world. Number three, verse eight. We have died with Christ. We. Christians. Believers. By faith in Jesus Christ, God unites us to Jesus. It's a mystical union. I couldn't begin to explain it all. But it's a union that's real. So that what happened to Him happens to us. He died. We die. That's why we don't have to go through the torment of a punitive death. The death we will die is a doorway to glory. The stinger is removed. Because we already died. That's number three. It's symbolized in baptism. That act of faith where you bury yourself in water. and Rise to life. The fourth fact is verse five. If we have been united with him in a death like his then here it is, number four, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We're going to rise, and we won't just rise in any old way like Lazarus. We will rise in the manner that Jesus rose, never to die again. So let's just say them again. Number one, Christ rose from the dead. Number two, he will never die again and therefore is Lord of the universe. Number four, we died with him. And number five, therefore, we shall rise in a manner like he rose. Four breathtaking facts that cut the root of bondage to everything in this life. I tell you, when you don't have to be afraid of dying anymore, do you realize what a dangerous person you are to the devil? To the cause of abortion, to the cause of injustices of every kind, you become an incredibly dangerous person because the final threat of your enemy is to kill you, right? And if you say, so if you kill me, what do you do after that? You can only kill me. Then I rise to glory and live in joy forever and ever. I fantasize all the time about meeting wicked people, crossing the bridge on the way home, putting a knife in my throat. And I'm saying, so what? No. I love you. That's what I hope I can say. You become a free, free free person. And I really believe, now mark this, I really believe that if that deepest of all fears is solved, it it begins to grow up and release all kinds of other little bondages. Drugs, alcohol, tobacco, food, lust, television, work, play, anything which holds you in an a paralyzing bondage, to have that, that root of the fear of death severed, frees you. Now, when I read those four breathtaking facts Friday, the rationalist and the realist in me, and there's a lot of him there, that's why I like C.S. Lewis so much, said, we know what we've got to do on Sunday morning we got to give them six reasons why they should believe Romans 6. Because you just read it, you're going to have a lot of people there who are going to say, So what if Romans 6 says it? That doesn't mean it's true. So give them reasons. Give them six good reasons. And I started writing my reasons down. It's not hard to do. There are good reasons. And then, the existentialist in me said, Hey! Wait a minute. You put that in the book already. And that's the book you're going to give them. So anybody that wants to have this book is free. Just walk across the the room there and get it at the end of this service. And at the back, Appendix 2 says, Is the Bible a reliable guide to lasting joy? And all my reasons, almost all of them, are there in that appendix. And so the existentialist reasoned, as he slips and does sometimes, you don't need to say that. In fact, it may not may not be the most important thing to say that morning. Uh, this is a judgment call on my part as to what you might need here. The existentialist said, um, give them a picture to show the difference between hearing four facts and saying, hmm, nice facts, nice arguments, let's go eat dinner. And being shattered, struck, changed by those facts. And the picture was this. Picture yourself in the kitchen, 5 o'clock, just before supper. Radio is on, news, coming over the news, facts, facts, believable, provable, facts. And you hear this word... That last year in Minnesota, I don't know if this is true, I just made this up. 30 children were killed in auto accidents because they were either walking along the sidewalk and somebody swerved and hit them or they darted out into the street. And you hear that and you wince and you say, wow, that's hard, that's tough. Those parents must have really gone through a lot. And on to the next piece of news. And suddenly, your front door bursts open and your 12 year old son comes charging through the door. Daddy! Part of us just got hit by a car! Now that's probably no more provable than what you just heard. It's no more objective. It's no more demonstrable. And yet, your life from that moment on is never the same again. And at that moment, everything in you from the top of your head to the bottom of your soul is engaged existentially. There's a shattering of a place that nobody could touch Before. And when I thought of this, I said, Lord, how is there anything I could do Sunday morning that would turn these four facts?
0: Jesus rose.
1: Jesus lives forever. We died with Jesus. We'll live forever. That would turn those four facts from the radio announcement to the screaming of the 12-year-old? I can't make that happen. But God might be able to in your life. And what came to my mind was a story of a um, Ukrainian rabbi named um, Levi Yitzhak. Levi Yitzhak was a uh, A Jew, a devout Jew, and a philosopher came to him one day and sort of callously rattled off a whole list of arguments for why God does not exist. And the rabbi listened patiently and the philosopher thought, well, maybe he will engage with me in kind and he will talk back to me and we'll have a good intellectual discussion. Which he could have done, I think, effectively, but instead this time he felt led to do this. He just looked at the philosopher in the face and said, What if it were true? What if it were true that there is a God? Tell me, what if it were true? And those words became an existential moment for the philosopher because never before had he felt vulnerable before god never before had he felt accountable before a god and these words niggled them way their way into him until he became so troubled that his heart was open and he reasoned in a different way and believed in the living god and so my prayer and thought was to end this service by asking you simply, what if these things are so? Have you seriously, honestly... Pose that question to yourself. What if Jesus rose from the dead? What if he will never die again and is Lord of the universe? What if those who believe in him die with him so that their sins are executed, as it were, in his death and don't have to be executed in our condemnation? And what if we will rise from the dead through faith and live forever and ever in joy and glory? What if? And let me just begin the answer to that question for you from the Bible. If it's true, then the root of bondage in your life can be severed. If it's true, you don't need to get to the top in order to be a success. If it's true, every loss that you endure for the kingdom will be paid back to you a thousandfold. If it's true, there is no ultimate risk that you can take in the cause of love and life and justice. If it's true, then the decay of your body is a prelude to glory. If it's true, then the whole spirit, soul, and body are going to be made pure someday, and there'll be no more struggle with addiction. No more struggle with any bondage at all someday. If it's true, there will be no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, no more grief, no more shame, no more guilt, no more paralysis, no more inferiority. It will all be gone for the former things have passed away. We will beat our swords into plowshares and our spears into pruning hooks and war will be no more. The Lord will make every wrong. Right. He will change every evil and either cast it out of the universe or transform it into good. He will rectify every injustice and his people will rise with him. He will be their God and they will be his people. He'll be the light. He will be like the sun. Jesus will be like the moon or the lamp. And we will have glory and joy and hope and satisfaction forever and ever and ever with one another in his kingdom. What if it's true? That's the question I want you to take away and mull over all through this day. Let's pray. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, I cannot transform the words of Scripture from the news report into the screaming child. But you can, and I ask that you would do it right now. I ask, Lord, that if people have burdens they would like lifted, bondages they would like broken, relationships they would like healed, sin they would like forgiven, that they would seek prayer from the prayer teams that will stand here at the front on either side when we're done. And I pray, Lord, now that as we close this service in a great heralding hallelujah of worship, you would draw near and show us that the words of Holy Scripture, the martyrs of all the ages, the saints and the people of God of all the centuries have confessed that these things indeed are so. In Jesus name. Amen.